We are in uh, continuing in our series on the life of Christ. We're in uh, part two of this series. We went several weeks through the promise through Christmas season, and now we're in the example, walking through uh, several stories of the example that Christ provided uh, while he walked this earth. And we're going to take a look today at really one of the most challenging uh, divisive things that Jesus ever said. And these statements that Jesus made in Mark chapter 5 will do really two things. They're going to address some of the deepest questions maybe that you've ever had about life. And the second, these statements are going to help you figure out really how you feel about Jesus. What are your thoughts and what are your feelings about Christ? This first one is a statement Jesus made about a little girl upon her death. Her mother and father are beside themselves with grief, and Jesus walks in and says something that on the face of it could be perceived as very almost harsh and uncompassionate. And let's read here his statement here upon her death, and we're going to step back and walk through this story. Verse Mark chapter 5, verse 39. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Now, maybe that doesn't quite seem like a big deal to you, but imagine if it was your little girl or your little sister you know, I have, my youngest is 13, and to think of the heartbreak that it would be to have, not even mine, but one of the little girls in our church who was sick or, or struck by a car and died, and someone was to walk in and look at the casket and say, oh, don't worry, she's not dead, she's just taking a nap. Man, that would be like, man, how, how, could, how could he say that? That's so cruel. It's in such bad taste. You know, furthermore, you're going to find out in the story that her parents, you know, were kind of blaming Jesus for her death. Jesus had been on his way to heal her, and he got delayed. And as a part of that delay, she ended up dying. And her parents were like, why did you delay when you knew our little girl was hanging on by a thread? You know, maybe you have been at a point in your life like this little girl's parents. And your thought was, hey God, why did you let this happen? God, what is going on? What is your plan? And this is really one of the most bizarre encounters in the life of Christ. So let's go back to the beginning and let's kind of walk our way up to the passage that we just read. Mark chapter 5 verse 22. Then he came, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. We'll find out later that this is his only child. Of course, all parents. You know, parents love all of their kids, but there is a special bond between a father and a daughter, especially his oldest daughter. He, and we find out here that Jairus is rich, and so I'm sure 
that he could have purchased the best doctors that money could buy, but they have told him there's no hope and that she will not last to the end of the day. And so in desperation, Jairus thinks, Jesus, I've heard about this man, Jesus, who can heal the sick. Let me go to Jesus. You see, Jairus was a religious leader. And the religious leaders were not excited about Jesus. But he is desperate and he thinks, what if it's true? What if Jesus can help? And so he runs around town asking everyone if they know where Jesus is. And he finally finds him and says, please, I beg you. Come and heal my daughter. I'm sure he may have thrown in some extra things. Like, I'm, I know I haven't been your biz, biggest supporter, but please, if you can do anything, please come. Let's keep reading the story. Verse 24. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? Come on, Jesus. There's hundreds of people. How are we supposed to know who it was that touched you? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Man, what an awesome story. This woman who had for 12 years had has had this condition and if you know anything about Jewish society you were not allowed to go into the temple during this time if you had blood evident because you were looked at as being unclean and so she crawls her way through the crowd probably risking being trampled to death and she reaches a hand out and touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus stops and says, Who touches me? And she probably tries to hide out of her embarrassment, but Jesus won't let it go. And she finally comes forward, trembling, thinking that she is about to be rebu- rebuked by the rabbi because she is an unclean woman. She had the audacity to touch Jesus. But instead of castigating her, he does what? He calls her daughter. It's the only time that Jesus uses this term in all of the gospel. 
It's a very tender, it's a very intimate term. Saying to her, not only have I healed you of your disease, but I'm including you in my family. Which is an awesome story in and of itself when you look at this woman's faith. We looked at this past week. It was faith in our small group that allowed the boy to be healed of demon possession. We see here it was the woman's faith that allowed her to be healed of her disease. But at this point, I'm sure Jairus is like, Jesus, my daughter is at home struggling every moment of her life is a struggle. She's about ready to pass. Can, you know, can, we, can we get going here? I'm sure there is a little bit of urgency from Jairus. Verse 35 says, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Oof. Imagine the feeling that Jairus had at this moment, the, the rush of emotions. What would have it been like for Jairus here? What Jesus did from a medical standpoint, some might say could be criminal malpractice. Jairus' daughter is minutes away from death, and here you have a woman who has a non-life-threatening illness that she's had for 12 years. If she survived for 12 years, she could survive a few more minutes while Jesus gets to Jairus' house to, to heal Jairus' daughter. But Jesus stops, engages the woman, and Jairus' daughter dies. You can't imagine how Jairus felt. How would you have felt in that situation probably confused asking questions you knew my little girl was on death's doorstep but yet you still delayed why why jesus let's keep going verse 36 but overhearing what they said jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue do not fear only believe and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were there with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Talitha is an Aramaic word which means little girl. It's almost like a, a pet name. The writers didn't translate it into Greek because there probably wasn't a good translation. It probably means something along the lines of honey. Honey. And Kumai is a very gentle word meaning get on up. It's not a strong word either. It's kind of a thing that you say to someone who you are slightly arousing them from a nap. So in other words, Jesus does not go in the bedroom, shake the little girl and say, Child, I command you to get up. It's not the way he approaches this situation. So in other words, he sits on the bed like a mother would have taken her hand, probably stroked her face and said to her, Honey, it's time to get up. 
Verse 42. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Mark gives us two remarkable stories back to back in this passage. I think these two stories give us really some important things Jesus teaches us about life and death. Five important lessons for us about life and death. To Jesus, number one, death is as easy to fix as waking someone up out of a short nap. And what scares us most in life Is it not our death or the death of someone we love? I think if we are all honest in this room today, that is a fear that we all have at some point in our lives. You see, there are two predominant views of death in our culture. The first is the secularist. When we die, that's the end. We are biological accident, the result of random collusion of particles emanating from the Big Bang. And if that is true, when we die, it is just all over. Bertrand Russell, the famous skeptic, says that we need to have the courage to embrace the fact that we and everyone else we love will die in the death of the universe. Don't console yourself with Christmas carols, he says. No heroism, no sentimentality can preserve any life beyond the grave. All of our labors, all of our accomplishments are destined to extinction in the vast death of our solar system. Only when we admit that, can we see life clearly? Man, what a nihilist point of view. If, that all, if that's all there is to live for, I can see why people despair in this life. But there's another point in that. Death is not natural. You see, God made us as eternal beings. And there is something not right, something that is foreign to us, about death. That is why it terrifies us so much. C.S. Lewis, a great writer, asked the question, does not the fact that we yearn for eternity point us to the fact that we were created for eternity? Fish do not complain about being wet, do they? No. They were designed for the water, they, are, they complain when they are out of the water. How do they complain? By flopping about on the bank as you reel them in. Back to C.S. Lewis's quote. Doesn't the fact we yearn for eternity show us that we were designed for it? If I find myself in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Another quote from C.S. Lewis. I saw in an interview with the late Steve Jobs years ago, he said, throughout my life, I've been unsure, but as I approach death, I think about it more and more. He says, because if the human body is just a biological machine, then when it's over, it's just turned off. It's over. And he says, that can't be right. I don't want that to be right. Your head may tell you one thing, but your heart knows the truth. 
So we see to Jesus, death is, is as easy to fix as waking someone up out of a short nap. Why? Because he has conquered death. Number two, Jesus' delay is not inconsistent with his love. Jairus, I'm sure, couldn't fathom why Jesus delayed. If he loved me, if he cared, surely he would have gotten there in time to help my little girl. But Jesus knew the delay would not make any real difference. You see, to him, death was as easy to fix as waking her up from a nap. And so the little girl's death was of no lasting significance. It was just a temporary delay. The point of this story is not that if you pray long and hard enough, Jesus will save you from death on this earth. Of course not. We see even this little girl died. The point is to give you a picture of what we will all experience in the resurrection. And in the resurrection, the joy of what, may, of what Jesus restores to us will make any pain we experience from his delay like a temporarily inconvenient short nap. Paul would go as far as to say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our afflictions in this life, no matter how bad, are only light and momentary. By the way, when Paul talks about pain here, he's not talking about some kind of junior varsity level pain because in Paul's life, he had experienced abandonment, betrayal, shipwrecked, being bit by a viper. But compared to the weight of joy of eternity and the length of time in eternity, he says this, what we experience in this life, is light and momentary. You say, Pastor, it does not feel light and moment, momentary in, the, in this moment. My loved one is gone. This is the darkest chapter in my life. Paul would compare it later to like a woman in labor. The moment you step foot in eternity and see the beauty of what God has done through it all, all this pain in this life will seem like just a bad night in a cheap hotel. Because after the labor comes the joy of that newborn babe that brings so much joy in life. After all of the pain and suffering in this life comes the joy of eternity. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to minimize pain here this morning. I'm trying to maximize Jesus' victory over death. This story shows us the master of life and death is fully in charge. His delay in this story is not inconsistent with his love. His delay in your life is not inconsistent with his love for you. He had a, pain, he had a plan for Jairus, and he has a plan for your life too. Number three, Jesus both offers more and requires more than you could ever imagine. 
both people in the story came to Jesus for one thing and ended up getting a lot more than what they asked for. But Jesus required a lot more of both of them than they were expecting too. Jairus came to Jesus in need of a healing, and what he got was a resurrection. I would call that a miracle upgrade. But what Jesus required of him was to trust him in the midst of bewildering circumstances. Trust him completely. The cost for the woman was that she had to expose herself to Jesus and publicly confess him before the crowd. Coming to Jesus always offers more and it always costs you more than what you realize. Many of you have been drawn to Jesus because of a need, which is why you're even here today. Maybe that's forgiveness, help with a family that is falling apart, putting back together a life that is broken. Maybe you need deliverance from an addiction, or maybe you need to find purpose and meaning in your life. What Jesus offers to you is far more than what you could ever imagine. He not only wants to help you with your problem, he wants to make you his child, and call you a son or daughter. He wants to give you something so much greater even than the solution to the problem, which is he wants to give you union with him for eternity. But he also requires far more of you than you ever dreamed. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Which meant total denial, total surrender, and total trust. There's only one trade Jesus is willing to make. He will give you himself for all of eternity. The promise that he'll make every sad thing come untrue. That surely goodness and mercy will follow you. But in return, he wants your complete surrender. He wants your total surrender. All of you for all of him. Lord of all or not Lord at all. That is what he is offering. Will you accept it? Number four, personal stature contributes nothing to overcoming death. These two characters in this story are very, very unequal. We have one who is a religious leader in the community, and then the other who is religiously unclean. He is the one, Jairus, who would have declared her unclean and unable to come into the temple and worship because of her uncleanness. He is rich. She is poor. He has servants and she is a servant. He has a name everyone in the city knew. Her name in the book of Mark is not even mentioned because no one probably knew her name. Yet Jesus gives healing to both in response to their faith. He makes no distinction their stature, their accomplishments, even their righteousness to Jesus means nothing. This woman represents uncleanness. Even this religious leader is unclean like this woman. Jesus' salvation is not a reward for righteous living. 
because no one is righteous in his sight. We are all stained to the core by sin. Jesus can save all who come upon him, call upon him, because the point is not how righteous you are before he saves you, but the power he exerts when he saves you. Or in other words, it doesn't matter how bad of a sinner you are, it matters how great of a savior he is. You see, you might be here like this woman. You might say, Pastor, I feel like no one notices me. I feel like I don't even have a name. You're just a part of the crowd. You're broken. You feel dirty. To which Jesus says, if you will reach out your hand to him in faith, he will save you from your uncleanness and call you his daughter. On the other hand, if you think that God is going to accept you because you think, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. I live by the golden rule. On a scale of people, you think of yourself in the better half. If he grades on a curve, you're fine. Then you'll never know his forgiveness in the resurrection. Michael Bloomberg, pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, he said, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven, and it's not even close. Most people have that attitude. You think that you've done something to make you worthy. You'll never know his forgiveness and his resurrection. He only feels empty hands. All that you need is Christ. Nothing that you've done will save you. And last of all, Our victory over death came only at a great personal cost to him. Verse 30 says that when the woman touched him, power went out from him. It's an odd phrase here, but scholars say it means he became weak. And what's really odd about it is that throughout the Gospels, Jesus had done far greater things than this. Casting out legions of demons, calming the storm, without even breaking a sweat. Why does this miracle take place? power out from him as mark tells us you see because our cleansing like this woman and our resurrection like this little girl would only come at a great personal cost to him in order to cleanse our sin you see christ would have to become dirty sin for us he took her uncleanness so she could be clean he had to bleed on the cross Like this woman, he became unclean in our place. He had to go into death like the girl so that we could be raised to life. These two miracles, back to back, are a foreshadowing of what he would experience upon the cross. If you struggle to believe, then believe this. Jesus came from heaven, healed the sick, raised the dead, lived the life that we were called to live and died the death that we were condemned to die, overcoming the thing that scares all of us in this room, death and the grave. He is the only one who could do this. He is the only one who could give us assurance for eternity. He is the only one that could help with that fear of death, knowing that we will spend eternity with him 
if we place our faith and trust in his finished work upon a cross. You see, the gospel is Jesus is the only Savior for the one problem that affects us all. Death. He did it by suffering the penalty of sin in your place and offering you new life. He offers it to you as a gift. Will you receive the gift of salvation? So my question for you is, have you received the gift that Jesus so freely offers? You must accept it in faith. We see that all throughout Scripture. Might I persuade you to consider him in light of your coming death? Because everyone in this room, we all have one thing in common that we are all sinners and that we all will face death at some point in the future so I ask you today will you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life let's pray